The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. To learn the rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and before I start today's show, I would like to thank Gary for his recent donation. If you do have the wherewithal to help keep the show on the air, folks, please go to andrewcarringtonhitchcock.com and click the banner at the top, how you can help keep ACH on the air, or buy a book down the right-hand side. Thank you. Now, today is Thursday, so it's time for our weekly visit with uh, Dr. Peter Hammond and uh, today we've got a very timely and topical one for you the real story of how American elections influence the whole world so let's introduce Peter now Peter how are you today I'm doing well thank you Andrew Great to have you on, as always. And as I said, folks, the real story of how American elections influence the whole world is our topic today. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off uh, with this one? Well, as you know, Andrew, I was brought up in Rhodesia, and I well remember that even though I was only a 16-year-old boy, I remember the American elections in 1976 being very heavy on everyone's minds as Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan were... were um, actually in competition for the elections in 76. And when the news came through that Jimmy Carter had won the 1976 uh, elections, although I was only a teenager in school, I understood that could mean the death knell for our country. And people may be surprised to hear that something in America could influence people far away in Africa. But in Rhodesia, we were fighting alone against an uh, massive uh, terrorist attack. The Soviet Union and Red China were pouring in the weapons and the training. And uh, in Rhodesia, you had a small country, very small population, that was defending itself against terrorists who were more numerous and better armed with international supplies. And we in Rhodesia were being completely sanctioned. So although we had fought alongside our allies of Great Britain and the United States in the First World War, the Second World War, the Korean conflict, Malayan conflict, uh, we were being uh, sanctioned, not only economically sanctioned, but even culturally, we were not allowed to take part in the Olympics, not even the paraplegics Olympics. And Jimmy Carter had as a key foreign policy goal to betray Rhodesia into the hands of the communist revolutionaries we were fighting. And so in 1976, when we heard that this anti-Rhodesian uh, Jimmy Carter was coming into office in the White House there was this understanding 
even amongst those of us at school, that this boded very ill for all of us. And in fact, Jimmy Carter, uh, using his Secretary of State, Andrew Young, and uh, in concert with uh, uh, Owen from the British Foreign Office and all the nonsense that was going on uh, from Britain at that stage to, along with the Commonwealth, the African Union, the uh, United Nations, they were putting more and more pressure on Rhodesia. Now, Rhodesia had only one ally, effectively, and that was South Africa. And so our entire border with Zambia and Mozambique was hostile. Terrorists were pouring across uh, into our country, planting landmines, attacking farms, mortars, machine guns, uh, all kinds of ambushes and attacks and landmines and roads. And and, uh, uh, here was the U.S. president putting the full weight of American foreign policy to support the terrorists against the citizens of Rhodesia, black and white, who together were fighting against the Reds, the communists. And uh, we were betrayed. As Ian Smith, the prime minister of Rhodesia, said, we were never beaten by our enemies. We were betrayed by our friends. And uh, although Americans removed Jimmy Carter from the presidency over 40 years ago, the long-suffering people of Zimbabwe, as they now call Rhodesia, are still stuck with Carter's legacy in the form of Robert Mugabe's murderous dictatorship and the uh, Mnangagwa uh, dictatorship that's followed that. And so uh, 40 years later, just one of Carter's legacies are still afflicting people. And there's another 13 others because uh, during the four years of the presidency of Jimmy Carter, 13 countries fell to communism. In most cases, they didn't just fall to communism, they were actually betrayed into the hands of communist revolutionaries. And uh, no countries fell to communism during the eight years of Ronald Reagan's presidency. In fact, countries started to be freed from communist oppression. And, and Ronald Reagan put freedom on the offensive and supported the resistance movements in communist countries like Solidarity in uh, Poland and uh, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and uh, UNITA in Angola and the Contras in Sand- uh, against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And so Ronald Reagan... I remember being a soldier in training in the South African Defense Force when the election results came through. Ronald Reagan's won the presidency for the U.S. And, and I remember the rejoicing in our bases because we understood, even though we were far away in another hemisphere, another continent, we understood that Ronald Reagan was anti-communist, just like Jimmy Carter was very much into appeasement and very friendly to the communists and very hostile to the allies of America and those fighting for freedom. And so uh, 1980... Uh, It was, in fact, uh, the beginning of a great uh, decade. Uh, 1980, uh, we did cross-border raids into Angola, and uh, we were on the offensive. And next thing we knew, the Americans were helping too by supporting the freedom fighters of UNITA and Angola, Renama and Mozambique, and uh, all that was going on Eastern Europe, all the way to Afghanistan, Nicaragua, and so on. So freedom was on the offensive. And at the end of the 1980s, we saw the collapse of communism throughout the whole of Eastern Europe, the coming down the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Iron Curtain, unprecedented religious freedom and missionary activity that would previously have been inconceivable came about as a result of the policies of Ronald Reagan, Anna Mustad, Margaret Thatcher, P.W. Bort in South Africa, Helmut Kohl in Germany. There was there was a, a whole lot of uh, responsible anti-communists in key positions during that time in the 80s, and I really miss having grown-ups in charge, actually. But as one politician observed... There's nothing they despise more than weakness. There's nothing they respect more than strength. And that's referring to the communists. There's nothing communists despise more than weakness, and there's nothing they respect more than strength. And 
America was plainly despised in the days of Jimmy Carter. However, under Ronald Reagan, America was respected. And uh, I must uh, say, when you come to Britain's side, uh, there's no doubt that Britain was very despised under Harold Wilson and uh, much greatly respected under Margaret Thatcher. And, uh, we see this. During the confused, erratic Clinton era, we witnessed and experienced a steady increase of violent persecution of Christians in the Muslim world. And so it was in the 1980s that radical Islamic regimes like the National Islamic Front in Sudan began systematic terror bombing campaigns of churches and hospitals and schools. And there's no doubt that the 90s was a very bad time for us. And we, we experienced uh, uh, increasing persecution, Nigeria, Sudan, it, it was hideous. And during that time, I was bombed, rocketed, strafed under artillery and rocket bombardments at church services. Our teams were strafed up in the Nuba Mountains trying to smuggle Bibles in there by helicopter gunships supplied by Red China to the uh, Islamic regime in Sudan. And uh, back in 1996, I didn't know the results of the American elections as I flew into Kenya. I was flying during the election campaign. And as I landed in this airstrip in Equatoria province on Meridi uh, airstrip in, in Sudan, the governor of Equatoria came to greet me on the airstrip. And uh, uh, as he approached, I was just coming uh, out of the aircraft and uh, he said, how could the Americans elect Clinton again? That was my first news that Bill Clinton had won the 96 elections. And I remember my heart sinking. And along with the Sudanese around, our hearts were grieving because we knew this meant a lot more death and suffering and increase because American foreign policy actually affects the rest of the world. And I don't know how many American voters, when they approach the elections, consider the implications for the persecuted church or for other countries far and wide or for American allies overseas, because most are probably just thinking uh, domestic policy, maybe the economy. But um, we from Africa plead with Americans to consider the implications for the millions of Christians who are drastically affected by U.S. foreign policy. And I've been a missionary to the persecuted church for over 38 years, and I've served in over 38 countries, and I've been involved as a missionary in eight wars and three revolutions. And I've seen firsthand the often disastrous consequences of White House policies, because U.S. foreign policy affects believers in Africa and the Middle East in particular. Ideas have consequences, elections have consequences. And so there was this trail of betrayal with Jimmy Carter, but there was a legacy of liberty in the days of Ronald Reagan. We saw the weakness of American policy during uh, the time of Jimmy Carter, and then we saw the absolute erratic uh, without any law or direction under Bill Clinton, where he even waged a war against uh, Serbia uh, in uh, taking the sides of the Bosnian Muslims who were affiliated to Al-Qaeda in in the 90s. And uh, you may recall a sort of wag the dog war to distract American headlines from scandals in the White House. Uh, so they started a war with Serbia. And uh, one of our missionaries was in Serbia having a prayer meeting at that very time uh, in, in Serbia in a church when she was bombed by her own Air Force. The U.S. Air Force came in and bombed uh, the, that block and glass uh, from the stained glass windows was showered all over the prayer group that was sitting in this uh, church praying there. So there we had an American citizen who's one of our missionaries, uh, Martha McComb, and uh, she was actually 
bombed by her own air force in uh, a church inside Serbia at that time. And my father-in-law, who spent many decades, over six decades, serving the persecuted church throughout Eastern Europe, he said, I would never get involved in a war in the Balkans. Never. He said, I'd, I'd, it's, it goes back for centuries. We should stay out of it. It's none of our business. But he said, if we had to go to war in the old Yugoslavia, I would never take the side of the Muslims in Bosnia against the Christians in Serbia. I'd rather take the side of the uh, Orthodox Christians in Serbia against the radical Islamic uh, jihadists of Bosnia. Uh, yet America, as uh, so often in the last century, took the side of the Bosnian Muslims who were affiliated to Al-Qaeda in attacking the Orthodox Christian Serbs uh, uh, in Serbia. So that, that was another bad example. But as uh, the US government would just send Tomahawk missiles into different countries, we got direct results too. So for example, um, here in Cape Town, uh, my wife and I and our, our uh, two uh, our, our three young children, uh, we only had three at that stage, were going to the waterfront uh, in Cape Town when uh, news came of the bombing of Plant Hollywood. So what had happened was Plant Hollywood was actually in the waterfront in Cape Town, and it got bombed by al-Qaeda terrorists in retaliation for America sending cruise missiles into uh, Khartoum, uh, which was in retaliation for uh, al-Qaeda bombing the U.S. embassies in uh, Dar es Salaam in Tanzania and in Nairobi, Kenya, which uh, killed hundreds, crippled uh, many hundreds and injured thousands. And uh, this is what happens. You get uh, action, reaction and uh, counteraction. And so here we were getting blown up in Cape Town. Uh, and who was hurt? Some poor British tourist minding his own business in Cape Town, South Africa, gets his legs blown off. Uh, because of a Muslim bombing at an American-owned restaurant in Cape Town in retaliation to the Americans sending missiles into Sudan, which was in retaliation for a jihadist having bombed U.S. embassies in Ke Kenya and Tanzania, which was in retaliation uh, for things America had done in the Middle East. And so it went on. And uh, again, I don't know how many people realize that when America bombs anybody in the Middle East, Christians get it in the neck because the, the local jihadists are frustrated. They can't maybe reach America, but they can reach a local Christian, even if that Christian's got nothing to do with America. It's just, well, America's a Christian country. America bombs us. Therefore, we go and burn down this church or blow up this church or crucify this pastor or shoot this minister's family and, and attack this uh, missionary or kidnap these people. And this is the murderous cycle that goes on. And, uh, Take, for example, when Obama became president of the of the United States and supported the so-called Arab Spring Revolutions that toppled stable governments in Egypt and Libya. And Egypt was known as one of America's most stable um, allies in the Middle East and, in fact, uh, the most important stabilizing influence in the Arab world and, uh, as was described, America's most valuable ally in North Africa. And the betrayal of the of Hosni uh, Mubarak's uh, government in Egypt and the betrayal of Egypt into the hands of the Muslim Brotherhood was a high foreign policy goal of Obama's White House and of uh, Hillary Clinton's State Department. And Egypt had been very stable for Christians for decades. In fact, uh, Mubarak's government had had the army 
full time, 25 hours a day, seven days a week, every day of the year, protecting churches throughout Egypt to protect them from terrorist attacks from, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, the US government under Barack Hussein Obama claimed that the Muslim Brotherhood was a force for peace in the Middle East, despite the Muslim Brotherhood having been a terrorist organization that had murdered the Egyptian president, Sadat, because he had made a peace treaty with the state of Israel. And uh, Muslim Brotherhood wanted to start war with the state of Israel, which wouldn't have exactly gone well for the whole of the Middle East, the ripple effects that would be involved in that. And the Muslim Brotherhood, when they got power in Egypt, 2013, thanks to Barack Hussein Obama's Arab Spring, uh, they went on a rampage attacking churches in retaliation. And 75 churches were destroyed, plus the Bible Society shop as well in Egypt, uh, just in the space of one weekend. Some of these churches stood for over a thousand years. And so uh, people started to flee out the country. And uh, we got bombed. I, I got bombed uh, in church, uh, strafed and attacked and so on in Sudan. There's ripple effects that happen from who's in the White House and what their foreign policy is and who America bombs and sanctions. And, and so hundreds of churches were bombed and burned out throughout northern Nigeria and Egypt and Syria and Iraq because of the eight years of Obama. Obama, one of his first policy actions was to release a known Islamic jihadist uh, who was locked up by the U.S. forces. And he went out immediately and within a week started ISIS. And it was testified later that the U.S. government had actually started ISIS. The American vice president at the time, Biden, testified along with a U.S. general before Senate uh, that, uh, yes, it's true, uh, America did start ISIS, the Islamic State. They did it in order to overthrow the secular government of Assad in Syria which you'd think, why would you do that? ISIS was beheading Christians. ISIS was uh, doing the most hideous atrocities against Christians from all over. And uh, well, the excuse of the US government was, well, we had started ISIS to counter the Syrian government, but why would you meddle in Syria's business? What's it to do with you? I've got missionary friends and and uh, Christians that I know in, in Syria, and they say the Syrian Christians all support Assad's government. They know that they get more religious freedom under Assad's secular government Egypt uh, in Syria than you could get anywhere in the Middle East. And uh, 6% of the total population of uh, Syria are Christians. In fact, a disproportionately large number of Christians are in the armed forces of Syria. And so you've got the ridiculous situation that the US government and NATO are supporting Islamic terrorists who are attacking Christians in Syria. And uh, it, it makes no sense unless you understand the synagogue of Satan, New World Order, globalist agenda. Uh, but from a normal point of view, uh, why would they do this? So the U.S. government destabilized governments and supported radical groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, al-Nusra, ISIS. And just in a five-year period from 2010 to 2015, there were over a thousand attacks on churches with 17,000 Christians killed by Boko Haram, uh, by the jihadists in just a five-year period. And the US engineered the destabilization of the Middle East, which resulted in catastrophic collapse of stable governments, the destruction of hundreds of historic churches, the deaths of many tens of thousands of Christians, especially in Iraq, Syria, and Egypt. And millions of these refugees fled the carnage in the Middle East and flooded into Europe, leading to shocking escalation of violent crime and terrorism, and a knock-on effect of this Islamic refugee crisis, tsunami, 
uh, illegal immigration into Europe in many cases. And we haven't seen the end results of that either. But there's been a vast amount of burning of cathedrals and churches and beheading of ministers in France, for example, the burning of Notre Dame and, and how many horrible things. And I'm sure most Americans don't think foreign policy when they vote for their president, but believers in Africa and the Middle East would earnestly entreat our brethren in America, seriously consider the foreign policy implications of your votes because lives are at stake. And just take, for example, one of George Bush's first actions as president in 2001 was to stop American funding of Planned Parenthood abortions in Africa. One of the very first acts of Barack Hussein Obama as president in January 2009 was to release hundreds of millions of US taxpayer dollars to fund Planned Parenthood abortions in Africa. And Hillary Clinton made clear her enthusiastic support for Planned Parenthood and its abortion agenda in Africa. And President Donald Trump stopped US taxpayer funding of Planned Parenthood abortions in Africa. So there's no doubt that millions of people died throughout Africa and Asia and the Middle East because of foreign policies of Jimmy Carter. And tens of millions continue to suffer to this day as a result of the Carter foreign policy legacy, including the people of Iran. It needs to be remembered that the Shah of Iran was one of America's closest and most loyal allies in the Middle East. And Jimmy Carter's State Department actively worked to betray the ally, the Shah of Iran, and to push Persia, Iran, into the hands of the Ayatollahs. And the end result of that has yet to be seen as Iran continues to be a volatile part of an extremely volatile Middle East. But the full extent of the chaos caused by Obama's foreign policies in the Middle East are yet to be calculated. I think of 2 Chronicles 19 verse 2. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. That's in 2 Chronicles 19, verse 2. And I think in many cases, U.S. foreign policy has helped the wicked and loved those who hate the Lord. And you can just think of Woodrow Wilson's policies, which upset the whole balance of power and the stalemate in Europe during the First World War and led to uh, not only the catastrophic uh, destruction of the stabilizing empires of Austria and Germany in Central Europe, but also the betrayal of, of Russia into the hands of the Soviets and and in fact, the Second World War policies of Franklin Delano Roosevelt saved the Soviet Union. Capitalists saved the communists in the Soviet Union from collapse during Operation Barbarossa. Long before Pearl Harbor, America was sending billions of dollars of high-tech military weaponry and aid into the Soviet Union to save the Soviet Union from, from a collapse. And uh, you can get a lot of these details in Herbert Hoover's, that's President Herbert Hoover's, Freedom Betrayed uh, a secret history of American involvement in the Second World War and its aftermath. And so President Herbert Hoover documented how FDR betrayed freedom, saved the Soviet Union's dictatorship of Joseph Stalin, and betrayed tens of millions of Christians behind the Iron Curtain and the Yalta Agreement. And we could talk about Eisenhower, who had as a high foreign policy goal to get Europe out of Africa, a bullying Belgium to get out of Africa, and, and over 10 million people died in the Congo as a result of the chaos caused by the uh, precipitous departure of Belgium and uh, the uh, playground, if you can use that word, that Congo became for the superpowers as Russia and China supported the Simbas who were massacring missionaries and murdering Christians. And the, the UN then invaded Katanga, which was a pro-Western Christian country, which seceded from the Congo. As I said, we are seceding from chaos. 
and the rest of Congo was under this communist Moist uh, under uh, Patrice Lumumba, and Moist Chumbe was an anti-communist, pro-Western Christian, and his government was invaded by the United Nations against the UN Charter. The chaos caused throughout, uh, especially Africa and the Middle East and, and Asia by US foreign policies, amongst others, uh, should be considered. And I wrote an article, Ronald Reagan Saved Lives in Angola. And it was 1986. I was in the bush in Angola ministering amongst UNITA. And um, we'd come under aerial bombardment. And uh, at that time, hind helicopter gunships and uh, MiGs were strafing villages and churches and marketplaces. And that night, uh, we would gather around a campfire. Uh, thankfully, there was no night fighting capability amongst the communist forces in Angola at that time. So we had a reprieve at night. So we're sitting around the campfire, listening to short wave radio, and on came the BBC World Service. And who were they broadcasting? Ronald Reagan. And there in the pitch dark in Kawanda Kabanga province, what the Portuguese called the ends of the earth, we heard Ronald Reagan say, we are going to send Stinger missiles to the UNITA freedom fighters in Angola. And it was this absolute shocked hush. You, you can imagine we're in, we're in the uttermost parts of earth, as the Portuguese called it, Kawanda Kabanga province. And, and on the radio comes Ronald Reagan. He's speaking about us, UNITA, in Angola, and our most perceived need, which is Stinger missiles, high-tech anti-aircraft uh, weaponry that could protect villages from terror bombings by the Cuban Air Force. And, and as we were in the pitch dark there, one of our people said, well, that would be nice, but will they do it? And indeed they did. And uh, we saw, and I've got pictures uh, on our website, I actually posted this article, Ronald Reagan Saved Lives in Angola, with pictures of Hind helicopter gunship shot down, uh, blown to pieces, actually busting a missile, MiG-23s and so on on the ground. And uh, there's no doubt that there are millions of people alive and free today because the far-sighted, courageous foreign policies of President Ronald Reagan, and I should add also Margaret Thatcher too. The long-suffering, persecuted Christians in the Nuba Mountains of Sudan have enjoyed just over three years now of relief from decades of scorched earth and aerial bombardments by the government of Sudan. Because the Trump administration prevailed upon the Sudan government to cease and desist their hostile acts against the beleaguered people of the Nuba Mountains and South Kordofan, the Blue Nile and Darfur provinces, in exchange for lifting of economic sanctions. So we were astounded to go to the Nuba Mountains back in 2017 and find that there was peace and there was no bombing. And this is an island of Christianity and a sea of Islam. The Nuba Mountains is up in South Kordofan in northern Sudan. It, it, it didn't uh, uh, benefit from the peace treaty that allowed the South to secede. The South Sudan is still a bit distant. Uh, the Nuba Mountains are, are a little island of Christianity behind the line, still under Islamic Arab rule in Sudan, under Sharia law at that time. And so we were astounded to find schools being rebuilt, churches being rebuilt, wells being dug, uh, normal activity taking place, marketplaces full. Now, what has happened? Well, they said Donald Trump used the art of the deal. He said to the Sudan government, I know what you want. You want the lifting of economic sanctions. Well, I'll tell you what I want uh, for that to take place. You must cease and desist all hostile actions, no bombings, no ground offenses against Darfur, Blue Nile, and the Nuba of South Kordofan. And after 12 months of uh, no bombings and actions, he lifted the sanctions and 
you know, we've managed to take in over 300,000 Bibles and Christian books into the Nubian Mountains in the last three years as a direct result of this unprecedented ceasefire and peace treaty, which has enabled this little island of Christianity and Sea of Islam to be a place of unprecedented peace and, and stability. And buildings are being repaired, crops are being harvested, all aspects of essential life which had been impossible under the incessant aerial bombardments of the governor's sedans, Antonov's MiGs, hind helicopter gunships. So uh, we have been uh, delighted to see that there's some good foreign policy benefit from the recent presidency, which you could be sure would not have been so had it been uh, Hillary Clinton. So from our first mission to the Nuba Mountains in 1996, we've come under aerial bombardments. We've witnessed the devastation of the scorched earth campaigns of the National Islamic Front government of Omar al-Bashir. But now, in the last three years, we have been able to carry out extraordinary far-ranging missions to the Mounts, delivering and distributing 300,000 Bibles and Christian books to over 260 schools in Nub Mountains. And the people of the Nub Mountains have asked us to communicate our gratitude to American voters for the U.S. intervention, which brought about such a dramatic improvement in their daily lives, to the extent that the dictator of Sudan for the last three decades, Omar al-Bashir, was arrested last year and put on trial for corruption and his different crimes. And they've now got a, a transitional government, which includes civilian elements with the military. They have abolished the apostasy laws under which Christians were executed. Muslims who became Christians were called apostates. They've abolished the blasphemy laws by which Christians had been executed for saying something that could be construed as offensive about Muhammad. And they have announced religious freedom and a whole host of things. So we haven't seen the end of this, but we're seeing some very positive indications in Sudan at this moment. And it's clear, ideas of consequences, what we so re reap, and there's a consequence for every action. So we continue to pray that our Christian brethren in the United States will be much in prayer and seek the wisdom of God as they approach this critical election, November 2020. And it is our prayer that uh, Americans will throw a few more spanners in the works of the globalist New World Order crowd who are seeking a very anti-Christian agenda. And, uh, and obviously, as a missionary to the persecuted in Africa, this directly affects us. Uh, so uh, we are praying that people in America who don't normally vote would vote and that people have been disenchanted by politics, but just remember, it's so important to use your God-given vote, your your privilege, your right, which I also see as a duty, uh, in a way that will cause most damage to the New World Order globalist crowd and provide encouragement and some support uh, for Christians and other freedom-loving people. So, back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, it's interesting what you said about um, what Trump did to... Uh you know, alleviate the persecutions of Christians in Sudan. I'm completely unaware of that story. And, uh, of course, in, certainly in the alternative media, the, um, the Trump presidency has been uh, a disappointment for many people because all the things that he promised didn't seem to have happened, like the wall and all these other bits and pieces. And at the same time, he's been, you know, kowtowing to Israel, moving the embassy uh, to Jerusalem, saying that uh, the Golan Heights is actually Israel's property and not uh, uh, Jordan, I believe, who they took it from, uh, and seems to be the most pro-Zionist president. But the thing about Trump is, uh, like is uh, regularly the case, it's a bit of a mixed bag. And I think that the situation now, certainly that I've been um, 
uh, my view, of course, neither you or I are in America, but I think it's one of those things where, again, it's going to be the lesser of two evils, but in this case, it's going to be a far lesser evil to have Trump. But at the same time, um, it's going to be difficult if he continues to do things that... Uh, we consider not in our interest in a, in uh, if he wins the presidency because then people come back to the likes of you and I and others who've made that statement and said that we're big Trump supporters. And I wouldn't say that I was. I think sometimes when he tweets and that, I find it quite amusing. I think it's great that he called out the fake news. But, you know, you've told us that it's fake. What are you going to do about it? And I think that we need to... I hope that if in his, uh, he wins the presidency that he can think to himself, right... You only get two terms in the US. We're going to have to start taking real action. Uh, Philadelphia is on fire at the moment with all this looting and what have you. And he needs to go out and he needs to basically use force on these people. And so they know that their actions will not be tolerated by the people who elected him, who are largely law-abiding people. Um, and I hope that he will say with the fake news, right, we're, we're um, going to... The deregulation that Clinton brought in we're going to re-regulate it. We're going to close down these monopolies. Uh, and then the same with any sort of financial institutions that deny people service because they don't like their political beliefs. So that's what I would hope, but whether we see it is another matter. But at this stage, I think that the real fear, certainly we know Biden is just not in a mentally fit state to be president. And even if he were, his policies stink. So then you're going to be looking at a Kamala Harris who's basically come out and said that these riots will continue and they should continue. Uh, so do you really want that running America? Uh, back to you, Peter. Yes, quite right. Um, I, I do not believe in salvation in politics and there is no perfect political candidate. And uh, to be honest, we don't deserve a perfect political candidate because we're very uh, sinful, wicked people when you look at the situations as a whole too. Um, in many ways, I think, uh, Trump presidency has been grace. It's been better than the average American voter deserved. And so uh, it's true for all of us that uh, we are facing such attacks on our faith. And while there's a lot of things we would like to have been different, and I must say, I like Donald Trump's candidacy in 2016 better than his presidency, because a lot of his promises like no more no-win wars and no more useless wars and no more foreign wars and bring the troops home and protect our own borders. And I mean, that was great. Uh, so we were very disappointed and uh, um, shocked when he sent in Tomahawk cruise missiles into Syria and, uh, you know, over an obviously fake news report about a gas being used on Syrian civilians. So, you know, to stop Syrians getting gas, let's blow them up with Tomahawk missiles. That, that sort of logic seems to somewhere along the line coalesce with many Americans. Uh, I don't think they realize how much damage they do and how many hundreds of thousands and reportedly millions of people have died since 2001 in America's so-called war on terror in the Middle East and how much damage that's done to the church and to America's credibility throughout the Middle East. And uh, I think Donald Trump's promises in 2016 to, to pull American troops out of all involvement in the Middle East was a wise, intelligent uh, move, and I wish that it had been fully done. And I'm informed that he's a bit ill-advised by some advice around him, uh, uh, which includes his son-in-law, apparently. Uh, so certainly, uh, I'm under no illusions that, that there are problems with the Trump administration, and yet 
they are light years better than the alternative under Hillary or uh, in future under Biden. So, uh, yes, we've got to think of this as a war. This isn't a matter of, of choosing perfection over uh, rampant evil. It's, it's a matter of choosing a flawed candidate over a um, rampantly evil pro-abortion, pro-perversion, LGBT, gender confusion, pro-revolution, defund the police and so on. The, the Democratic Party in America is so bad that if you go onto the Communist Party USA website, which I've done, you'll find not only does the Communist Party USA sell linen baseball caps and T-shirts and mugs and uh, pens, credit cards accepted, uh, but they also, in addition to a capitalist hypocrisy, uh, the, they say the Communist Party USA is not placing up a candidate in the next election, but advise all cadres to vote for the Democratic Party candidate. Well, what does that tell you? That tells you that the Communist Party USA, which used to put up Gus Hall and, and other candidates in presidential elections religiously over the years, for the last 20 years or so, since the time of Clinton, they have not bothered to put up a Communist Party USA candidate. The Communist Party USA website says, vote for the Democratic Party's candidate. Well, what does that tell you? Um, well, it tells me that, like in South Africa, where the South African Communist Party says the same thing. They also sell baseball caps and T-shirts, credit cards accepted in the Communist Party USA, sorry, Communist Party South Africa website. But they also say that uh, they advise all cadres to vote for the ANC candidate in this country. When a Communist Party doesn't bother to put up their own candidate and recommend another party, it means they have so infiltrated and controlled that party that they don't even see the need to put up their own candidate. So I think that tells us when we know who our enemy is, uh, my first priority is to cause as much damage and disruption to the plans of the enemy. And uh, in doing so, that means we sometimes have to accept flawed allies. And uh, uh, in in the situation recognize we're in a war, I think it's quite clear what we should do. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, indeed, strategic folks. And, uh, you know, I'm not one who goes along with the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, but certainly from a strategic point of view, we need to look at what the best options are i mean it's a you know if if you go out and buy a car there's very few of you out there listening that could go out and buy a top of the range you know mercedes something like that so you get the best that you can get for the resources that you have and it's not necessarily what you want but will it do more for you than you know you, you make that decision on a particular model for whatever reasons and that's what we've got here and um, one thing in Trump's favour, and I just can't understand why, but this utter hatred that they have for him through the media in America, who we know uh, is controlled by the usual suspects, when he's done so much. And he says himself, he's the most Zionist president in history. I've already explained what he's done for Israel. We know he's done even more than that. Uh, but he gets all this um, stuff thrown at him. I think probably what it was... What upset them most of all was the fake news thing. And he didn't start the fake news thing. That was coming out the main uh, of the alternative media when we were talking about, you know, the, the alternative media was referring to the mainstream media. And he wrote with it. And so a lot of people uh, who've never, you know, listened outside of the mainstream presumed that he invented that term. But that's been hugely important to what we do. And it's also given us the opportunity or rather it's it's seen the rise in restrictions where you have 
Twitter censoring a president of the United States of America's tweets. It's absolutely astonishing. And you have things on Facebook where you put a post up now and then they'll try and uh, counteract it with fact-checking and stuff like that that is wholly unreliable. We've exposed that on this show. So there's many things that he's done in our favour and I just think that... Um, I still don't understand why this utter loathing for him in the mainstream media. I've never known a president so attacked as him. I've never known a president that I, you know, I look on the BBC and pretty much everything they write about him is negative. Uh, I've never seen that. So there's something about the guy that, despite all the things that he does for Israel, that really unnerves these people. So you've got your choices, him or Biden. Um, obviously, Biden's not going to last long, so that's going to go to Kamala Harris. Just try looking into her for a while, and you'll be uh, very much put off. So I, I personally, all I can say is that he's the best that we've got out there, and hopefully his second term will be better than his first. But for those of you who want to you know, elect an alternative candidate or you don't want to vote, things like that, it's just one of those unfortunate things that, yeah, it'd be great if enough people elected voted for an alternative candidate to show the powers that be that they've got to listen to, say, a more right-wing alternative. But the chances of that happening, uh, getting the amount of votes, is very slim. And even if it were, that would... Uh, when you've just got the presidency, you've got another four years, you know, why do you have to listen to them? You know, these people aren't going to go out on the streets and riot. It's the left that are going to go out on the streets and riot. And that's the problem that we in the alternative media have had. We are a largely peaceful group of people. Uh, we're Christians, we're constitutionalists, and we're law-abiding. And so constantly they have to demonise us in their mainstream media as white supremacists and all this garbage, whilst uh, claiming that the left that are rioting and causing all this damage and mayhem and injury and murder they're peaceful protesters we've never seen a world like this it's completely turned on its head it's like the book of revelation it's where everything uh, or oh, i forget the exact biblical passage peter will know uh, a time where everything bad will be considered good and everything good will be considered bad i think i'm paraphrasing that wrong peter but uh go over to you for your comments Yes, uh, you quoting straight from Isaiah 5, verse 20, 22, I think. Uh, Cursed be those who um, turn light for darkness and darkness for light, sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. And uh, you've got these people invert reality. And I think this is what we're dealing with, where they invert reality. And basically, they villainize the victims. They victimize the villains. And they accuse you of what they themselves are guilty of. It's absolutely extraordinary. But yes, uh, it seems that Donald Trump has gotten their goat because he speaks his mind and he's not someone they can buy. He doesn't have a price. He's, he's too wealthy for them to be able to um, buy off. And he seems to have his own convictions and He's very much a sort of self-made man. He's also an exhibit A for the power of positive thinking. He went to uh, Presbyterian Church all his life. And uh, his minister uh, in his growing up was uh, Norman Vincent Peale, the man who wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. And so that sort of gives you a bit of insight to Donald Trump's thinking. He's, he's the power of positive thinking personified. Uh, there's, of course, some biblical truth to the power of positive thinking, but it's not meant to be taken out of its biblical context, but the Norman Vincent Peale was onto something, but it, it needed more balance too. Still, 
what you've got in Donald Trump is someone who's willing to call out fake news, and uh, he has uh, attached his cause to the pro-life movement and to a marriage can only be between a man and a woman and things like this, which is good. Now, why he's also found it necessary to accept the Republican Party's LGBT uh, side or uh, the Israel lobby, when as a candidate, he was speaking out straight that we shouldn't be supporting any foreign countries and there shouldn't be foreign aid and we shouldn't be involved in foreign wars. And, and now, as a candidate, I thought he was vastly better than he has been at present. He's done good things as a president. He could have done better. As you said, I certainly hope that in a second term, he may feel a greater freedom. That's assuming he wins the second term. And, and that depends on a lot of voters. Do you know, here's an interesting fact, uh, Andrew, that statistically, there are more people who don't vote in the United States elections than do vote, meaning there's more people who are eligible voters who haven't bothered to register to vote and eligible voters are registered voters who don't turn up to vote combined than are those who do vote. So you could say that more than half the voters say, what difference could I make? And that just shows you that if we could mobilize more people who don't normally vote to vote or to register to vote, what a difference that would make. Now, uh, for example, I've met a lot of people in America since 2016 who said, I never voted before 2016. But Donald Trump inspired me that here at last was someone who wasn't a politician, he was a businessman and he's making sense and I liked what he said and, and so I went out and I registered to vote or I voted. And I had people say, I've never, I haven't voted since Ronald Reagan. And this is the first candidate since Ronald Reagan that I thought was worth supporting because it's a protest against the, the establishment because here we at last had someone like Reagan who wasn't part of the inner establishment. And uh, so uh, interesting, there was a lot of those people. But then I heard quite a few of them in America in the last year or two saying, although I vote for Trump in 2016, I won't vote for him again because he's only built some of the wall, not all of the wall. And he's uh, continued to be involved in the wars overseas, even though he's downscaled our troops, he hasn't pulled them back yet. And so there was disappointment. And so I uh, seriously uh, fear that Donald Trump may have lost or alienated some of the voters which voted for him uh, last election 2016. And uh, that it would be a great pity to give a victory to the enemy who hates so much of what we do and who've got a very radical agenda um, uh, just because we are rightly disappointed at, at a lot of the things that weren't done. I think it's as important though to look at what is going to most upset our enemy and upset his plans? And I think that may be a good answer to us. So back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And um, Jeff Rents, who uh, owns the network that we're broadcasting on, the RentsRadioNetwork.com. Go to Rents.com as well for up-to-date news. Uh, he's been saying in recent days that, um, well, he's been saying it for a long while, that he feels that uh, the Harris-Biden ticket were designated losers. And he's been talking more as we're getting close to the election. You know, when we're on with you again next week, folks, it will have already happened. And I really do fear for people's safety in America 
and I urge you to have an election day plan, as uh, Dr. Matthew Raphael Johnson said as well on this show, because uh, we've heard that there's all these, um, you know, riots planned. We've already seen, I understand, that they're boarding up areas of Washington, D.C. already. Um, there's these communist uh, cells all over the place that are armed to the teeth. And the reason that Jeff says that these are designated losers is that you're not going to be able to justify the riots as much if your people get in, Biden and Harris. But if Trump gets in for another four years, that will unleash this so-called righteous anger that will be amplified by the mainstream media in America. And if what we saw earlier in the year regarding the George Floyd riots, when you actually get Trump in and you're told that you've got him for another four years, I think that we could be seeing mayhem throughout America. And that's why you really need to be careful. And the other thing out there is you look at people who do try and defend themselves in America, like the McCloskeys. You know, they had these people storming their front yard and they went out with weapons. They look, just stay away. And they're being charged uh, because they didn't allow them to storm their yard. They didn't shoot at them. So what's going to happen if someone has to defend themselves against rioters? Well, look at um, look at that guy. Um, Richard Yes, it. thank you. I was thinking, I, I finally got there. Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, there was a guy called Stan Rittenhouse who wrote a book called For Fear of the Jews, which I read many years ago. I'm not sure if they're related. But yeah, Kyle Rittenhouse, as Peter said, he was obviously defending himself. The president even came out and said he's defending himself. So why on earth is he still in custody? You know, if he mm. hadn't have taken the action that he did, he would be dead. So this is the problem that you're facing out there. And we need to see the people in the mainstream media who have drummed up and incited all this violence, they need to be prosecuted for the violence that they have promoted. And the real power in America and around the world is not so much the governments, it's the media. And you're seeing what they do and the lengths that they're prepared to go to if a sitting president doesn't do as they tell him to do. Peter, back mm. to you. Yes, I, I think you're quite right. What we have seen in the streets this year, particularly in America, is attempted revolution. Uh, there's no doubt this is a Marxist revolution underway. And now what they've also done is they've lifted up unrealistic expectations and ideas in the minds of their people, because that's part of a revolutionary's goal. You want your people to be perpetually outraged and disappointed, to fuel their anger and their violence. And so they promise them what's impossible to deliver, guaranteeing they're going to be upset. But also, part of this, they are on a kind of win-win in one sense. If by their bluff and bluster and their deceit, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of cooking the books and fake voting and uh, ballot stuffing and the, a lot of the postal votes open to fraud as well, and um, the dead are going to vote in droves and millions of illegal aliens are going to vote. And so uh, you can imagine how important it is for everybody possible to vote against that because to, to win in the situation where in California, for example, you don't even have to show your identification to vote and, and illegal aliens can vote. So there's, there's a lot of reasons why one should be concerned. But if the Biden ticket wins, Biden-Harris ticket wins, then they have revolutionaries in the White House and they can do a lot of the evil things such as you saw in the days of Obama, which would cause major havoc, not just for America, but far and wide. If they lose, they can claim that this, the election's been stolen by the Republicans and uh, Trump somehow rigged the election, which uh, would mean that he got more legitimate votes and they'd organized illegitimate votes for their side. But anyway, 
Uh, so it's a sort of win-win for them because if if they get the revolutionaries in the White House, they'll fuel a revolution through national policy. If they lose, they encourage the revolutionary streets of people who've already been set up to believe that if they lose, it's because they've been um, done out of their, their just uh, victory that, that they've anticipated. And so and this is why I think all the media is predicting huge wins for Biden simply because, well, remember last time, it was 98% Hillary Clinton win and less than 2% chance of uh, Trump winning, according to the New York Post, the day before the election. Sorry, on the day of the election, that's what they were saying. In fact, in Cape Town, the day after the election, our newspaper headlines was Hillary wins. And they'd gotten it wrong. They went to print um, with uh, the polls instead of uh, with the uh, actual election results. So um, I believe, yes, we've got to prepare for revolution, but bear in mind, the best way to defeat the revolution is not to give in to it. We should vote. We should vote strategically. We should resist and we should be prepared. We need to be prepared. We need to be armed. We need to be networked. We need to stock up. We need to have a good relationship with our neighbors. I mean, make no mistake, this is a revolutionary attempt. They are seeking to take over the United States of America top down and bottom up. And that's why they've got the revolutionaries in the streets and TIFA and BLM are a part of the agents of the of the. Um, revolution, but they've also got the uh, coordinators uh, putting their puppets into, for example, Biden and Harris uh, to be able to further what they want. Obviously, those people are are nothing but empty suits. They they are puppets, and uh, they are they'll do whatever their masters have told them to do. Much like I think it was the case with Carter and with Obama. I don't think they were their own people at all. Uh, they they just uh, in in front. And so this is what I think is different about a person like Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump is a real person with a real agenda with his own convictions. Now, that doesn't mean he always chooses right, and he sometimes has bad advisors, but he is not someone who is owned and uh, uh, who is being manipulated openly by others. Whereas in the case of Biden-Harris, I don't think they have any convictions. I think they'll do whatever they're told uh, by their puppet masters. And so we're heading for revolution, and... Uh, it's not just in America. We're facing in South Africa. We're facing second phase of the revolution over here. And make no mistake, whoever is in top leadership, you still have to be prepared on the ground to protect your property and have a network with your neighbors so that you can survive the kind of um, we're bound to have more lockdowns. We're bound to have more shortages and supplies. So we need to stock up and be wise and and. Uh, have a plan because we're entering into some unstable times. Yes, back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And uh, before we close out the show, I managed to grab my book, uh, Synagogue of Satan, 1998. Um, in September, Bill Clinton, whilst on a visit to Ireland, made the following startling admission as to who really makes the decisions in the world. This is what he said. You know, by the time you become the leader of a country, someone else makes all the decisions. You may find you can get away with virtual presidents, virtual prime ministers, virtual everything. And I think that that is why they hate Trump, because he will come out and suddenly tweet things that they don't like. We saw some weird things happening early in his presidency when uh, he uh, backed uh, Putin. I forget the exact situation, but you'll remember when they turned the lights off and on. If <laughs> you remember that, Peter, when he was in that sort of yes. press conference, he said, oh, is that the CIA or what? something made a joke about it? But anyway, before we go, uh, can you let the audience know uh, where they can find your work and how they can get in contact with you, please? 
Yes, certainly. Thank you. Uh, you can email me at mission at frontline.org.za, mission at frontline.org.za. And our website is www.frontlinemissionsa.org. So frontlinemissionsa for South Africa.org. And you can also find me on, on Facebook as well, Frontline Fellowship or Peter Hammond. Thank you so much, Peter. Fantastic information as always. And uh, Peter and I will be back with you at the same time next week. You have been listening to the real story of how American elections influence the whole world. I want to thank all of you for listening. I will, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day. And bye for now.